We forget that people look to us as leaders and owners and assume we want to be in charge and that we are in charge. And when problems arise, they should give them to us. But what we have to do is say, no, 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 I'm going to create owners out of other people. Welcome to a special episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast featuring the incredible women who lead some of the most innovative companies in the nation. And you may not be able to create equity ownership in your firm, but what you can do is you can give people ownership of a project or their world, which is like, you are the leader of this, not me. Meaning, you know what, ignore me as needed to get the job done. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at some of our most impactful conversations on this podcast. We're gonna feature a number of thought leaders who are single-handedly transforming the way the game is played. From building a team of impact players to combining empathy with accountability, this episode is one you don't wanna miss. Engagement without accountability creates entitlement. And now they've kind of created the monster that they can't feed. I'm all about engaging folks. I would tell you that if you only have high accountables in your workplace, they're easy to reward and engage. I will give them anything because anything I spend on them comes back threefold. But if I'm trying to buy somebody's commitment or love or buy in, it's never going to happen and it's never going to be sustainable. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. As we kick things off, we're revisiting our conversation with Sherry Stewart Deutschman, who built a $40 million company that was named to the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing private companies in America for 10 years straight. She's also the founder of Brain Trust, a company dedicated to helping women entrepreneurs grow their businesses to a million in annual revenue and beyond. But Sherry's success was not served to her on a silver platter. In fact, growing up, she had the deck stacked against her. The first couple of years in Nashville were very tough. I was a single mom, had no support system in town. I didn't know anyone here in Nashville. And so when times got tough and I didn't have enough money to make ends meet, uh, my daughter and I learned to live without electricity sometimes. So I could pay daycare or I could pay the light bill, but not both. So we went without. There was, you know, a time that my parents came by to visit Well, they didn't come by to visit. They drove five hours to see me. They couldn't call because I didn't have a telephone. So they just showed up and were just aghast that I did not have uh, electricity and that all I had was a cooler over in the kitchen that held my daughter's milk and cheese and (laughs) basics like that. I just told them we were fine. We just had to, you know, make adjustments. And I told them to look at us. You know, we, we are totally healthy. We are fine. I think they left me about $200 before they drove back to North Carolina. But those early years, you know, being a single mom in a strange town really uh, set me up, I think, to be a lot more empathetic leader later when I became a leader so that I cared a lot more about the personal situation of the employees. And that's largely because 
oftentimes I would be sitting there working for this company and not being able to concentrate on work because I was literally counting pennies to buy gas to go in my tank to get home to go into a hot apartment because I didn't have AC. You mentioned in the book, Lunch with Lucy, so much of this is about investing in your people. And so much of this is about, you know, just that level of empathy that you have there. But did you ever have like any like formal business education? Like, did you ever know that that was like the right way to to grow a scale of business? Or did you just feel it was the right thing to do? (laughs) No, I didn't know anything about business really, but I read a lot and I had read the book Nuts about Herb Kelleher and how he started Southwest Airlines. And he believed that if he just took great care of the pilots and the flight attendants and the admin people, that they would be happy at work. And when they were happy at work, then the passengers would be happy at work. And that would make a strong airline. He was right. I mean, even to this day, Southwest Airlines has one of the most uh, fabulous stories and so many profitable years because he took that approach. And that really resonated with me. I thought that's smart. And it's just common sense. Now, you say it's common sense to you, but why is it that so many business leaders struggle with that this type of concept? Because obviously, as, as you've grown your businesses, it's been very much based around like transparency and actually investing in people and in, in sharing in the profits. But it seems that most businesses across America are generally very averse to that. It's just fear. Fear and greed. I mean, they're afraid that anything that they give to the employees takes food out of their mouths. And it's just the opposite. I've often told people that my company wasn't successful in spite of all the crazy things that I did to take care of my employees. It was only successful because of those things. And, you know, I I try to get entrepreneurs to think about taking care of their employees as an investment, not an expense. It's an investment that will actually and absolutely produce the greatest ROI of any investment you'll make on your business. So we got to get to get to Lucy. You know, you've got the, the book with the name Lunch with Lucy. Who is Lucy? And what, you know, let, let's talk, what were the lunches? Okay, so I'm Lucy. Lucy is my alter ego. And I created this program to just listen to employees. And I didn't think it sounded that inviting to say, have lunch with the CEO. So I just created this alter ego, Lucy. I like alliteration, so it was Letter, Logic, Lunch, Lucy. (laughs) Letter, Logic was the name of my company. And on Wednesdays, I reserved my lunch hour for an employee. And they would sign up to have lunch with me. They always chose the restaurant. And they chose whoever else might be with us at the table. And then we just talked about what they wanted to talk about. So, you know, sometimes it was an employee wanted me to uh, meet a spouse or somebody they were thinking about making a spouse. One young man, you know, wanted me to have lunch with his mom and it turned out to be dinner with him and his mom and eight other people and a really hefty bar tab that night. But it was just an, an opportunity for me to learn about them. And so in general, I learned, you know, about unique challenges that they faced before they even came into work every morning or the kind of household they were going to at night. And I learned about their hopes and dreams and what they wanted to be doing with their life that they couldn't do yet because they were just doing all they could do to keep the lights on. And 
I learned about things that were going on in my company that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. And I was able to respond and make the company better because of that. And I learned what they thought of me as a leader. I mean, they challenged me sometimes, uh, challenged my decisions. Sometimes they used it as an opportunity to tell me about a piece of equipment that was faulty or that was, you know, really becoming a bottleneck in the organization or about some new piece of equipment they'd heard about that they thought we should invest in. And I listened. And they knew that I listened because they saw me take action based on what I heard. And also every week we published the minutes to our leadership meeting for all the employees to read. And if they had talked to me about a faulty piece of equipment, they knew I listened because they could see that at the very next leadership meeting, I discussed it and we decided what to do. And so that gave them confidence and that made more employees want to have lunch with Lucy because they saw it as a way to, you know, get things fixed and to, um, to be heard. It turned out to be the most valuable time I spent in my company every week. There was no replacement for that. And even now, I sold the company in 2016. I have employees who call Lucy to say, can Lucy meet me for lunch or for coffee? Or And the text that I get almost daily or email from somebody, it's Lucy to them. And I think it was a really great way to take down the hierarchical barriers Interesting. My husband has a real estate practice. He has had 350 agents. He sold it last year, but he copied me and he called his duck out with Deutschman and let people sign up to take a walk with him. And he found it similarly to be just transformational and giving people a chance to get to know you, but more importantly, you getting to know them and hearing them. And that makes people feel so valued that you would take the time to listen and hear their life story and hear about their challenges and their dreams, I think everybody should try it. You'll feel so good about yourself and you'll learn things that will save you a lot of time and money. And I remember you mentioned this actually, that you could you could spend tens of thousands of dollars on, on consultants to essentially gauge the effectiveness of your leadership and evaluate your company culture, or you can spend $40 on lunch. Exactly. Yes. So, so let me ask you then, in, in terms of just overall your experience as a business leader, what do you believe sets apart the, the great business leaders from everybody else? Empathy. Absolutely. The ability to put yourself in the shoes of the people who work for you or your clients, to be able to see the world through their lens, through their circumstances. And that will help you make better decisions for the employees and for the customers. And so I I think empathy is the most undervalued trait in leadership these days. After empathy, I think authenticity. And I I think authenticity, that idea is kind of overused right now. But just being real with people and removing all of the, the masks and the you know, that what people think of us and letting them know who we really are and getting to see who they really are. You know, I had uh, a mentor once who advised me to stop telling people that I didn't have a college education. And she said, they don't need to know that. And I want you to quit doing it. And I tried that for a while. And I felt that my value 
telling other entrepreneurs or other wannabe entrepreneurs, don't let a lack of education hold you back. Look at what I've done without it provided a lot more value to the world. And it, it broke down barriers before they could even start. And speaking of barriers, there's going to be people who listen to this and they're going to hear everything and they're going to hear about everything from, from listening to the transparency, to sharing, to investing in your team. And they'll nod along, but they won't do any of it, right? What do you think is the biggest barrier that holds back a business leader from either putting these things in place or really buying into this concept? Fear and greed. And, you know, it is so short-sighted because taking care of the people that the people on the front line that are running your business, taking care of them, there can be no negative consequences for that. I mean, there is no downside to taking good care of people. Just being able to put yourself in their shoes and think, what kind of life would I have if I were paid what they are paid? Or if I had the benefits that I'm providing them, could I live on that? Is that a great way to live? And could I really focus? And would I give a damn about my boss and my boss's company? And the answer is going to be no. And that is proven right now with uh, every year Gallup does a study on employee engagement. And right now they're saying that 64% of our employees are disengaged. And you know why they're disengaged? Because they don't believe they matter. And in most cases, they don't matter. And so when you let employees know that you they do matter, you care, and that you want to hear what they have to say, and you want to act on what they've told you, then they're going to get in the game. And they're going to help you build a much stronger company. There is nothing to fear. You've only, you're only going to lose out if you don't try this approach. And, and Sherry, looking back just through your experience with uh, with your organization, what percentage of that, you know, let's say growth rate and that success do you believe is attributable to just, let's say, having the right product or service versus the, you know, let's say the right leadership versus the right team versus really this, this aspect of investing in your team? Like how much of it do you think actually impacted the growth of the business? It's huge. So we were in a mature market, highly commoditized and we're able to be not just to grow quick enough to be on the Inc. 5000 list for 10 straight years, but to be the most expensive in the nation and to still grow at that rate. And it, it was my job to meet with prospective clients and tell them to their faces that you must know that I don't believe the customer comes first. I mean, who does that? Tells the customer to their face, you don't come first. But we did it. I did it. And then I said, you know, my employees will always come first. And let me explain to you what I do for them. Now, let me explain to you how that is going to translate when it comes to the service you're going to get from us. And I didn't even need to tell them anymore. They got it. They started nodding. So our sales team said that 85% of their sales were what they called culture sales, where the customer chose us because of the culture and didn't mind that we were the most expensive in the nation. They knew they were getting a quality product and it, it enabled us to have a, just a, a stellar reputation in the industry. And I imagine that also extended to support a lot of the recruiting as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody wanted to come to work for us. And we're, you know, relatively small company. When I sold the company at 40 million, there were just 52 employees. Uh, they were cream of the crop employees. 
Sherry believes empathy is the most undervalued trait in leadership. As a result, she always has balanced empathy with accountability to keep her organization drama-free. Speaking of drama, Cy Wakeman is a workplace drama expert, leadership consultant, and New York Times bestselling author. Her reality-based approach to leadership has transformed thousands of organizations from cultures of disengaged entitlement to ones with high accountability. Cy believes that the path to a thriving workplace starts by eliminating drama and emotional waste. Drama basically is the funky name for what we call emotional waste. So emotional waste is any energy that's taken away from results or happiness, i.e. engagement at work. So when you think about it, it's disruptive behavior, which is stemming from usually unproductive thinking. And what would be some examples? Examples, of, Yes, of, of emotional waste. Tattling, scorekeeping, venting, blaming, resisting change, withholding buy-in, holding the organization hostage, um, giving terroristic demands in order to get my engagement. And these are very measurable behaviors. Well, early on, I, I believe it was in No Ego, you put a stat in there that left me shell-shocked. The amount of time that leaders in organizations spend dealing with emotional waste daily, weekly, monthly, I believe it was at least it was over two hours a day. Yeah, it's crazy. The actual figure is two hours and 26 minutes a day at work, the average person spends in drama. And what's sad about that is it's not only the lost productivity, it's not that people aren't working. They're working hard, but they're working hard with a grudge. They're working hard without full access to all of their intelligence. Like there's just a part of them that's distracted and, and resentful and feeling taken advantage of. It's time that people spend feeling miserable at work that's unnecessary. It's just, it's self-imposed suffering. The challenge always I've found is that since we're talking about human beings here, yeah. at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings which are unpredictable. Is it possible to have a 100% drama-free organization? I think if you ask my team, I can't say we're 100% drama-free. We're not robots. We get our egos hooked. But I would say that uh, drama just doesn't take the toll that it used to. Because the average organization, if you do the math, is 816 hours per person per year. And a lot of us aren't feeling like we have all the staff we need. And just think if you could upcycle 816 hours of drama a year per person and add people feeling like they liked each other rather than judged each other. In size view, drama in your workplace comes from one of the following three places. You either hired it, you allow it, or you are it. Of course, we all want to avoid bringing on emotionally expensive team members in the first place. But is there really a foolproof way to hack the hiring process? to identify high drama candidates before you spend time, money, and resources onboarding them into your organization. First of all, get really clear about what's important to your organization if you're committed to a drama-free or at least drama-evolving organization. And I say this because we believe they did the bait and switch, but a lot of times we're the ones doing the bait and switch. We don't believe people when we see you know, the first time we don't believe them, the first time they show us who they are. We also say we want one thing, but when we get in and we see a bright, shiny resume where this person served under judge such and such as a clerk or whatever it was, we lose our minds over that, right? So we have to get very clear and be willing to go through quite a few candidates to take our time. And a lot of people have weird beliefs that they haven't looked at. Like a lot of people say, you know, oh, Cy, it's so hard to find good talent. 
And when I hear that, I don't experience that as an employer, but then I see the flaw in their logic. They think they have to win the talent war in their city for people in that profession. And I'm like, no, you just have to be the best place for high accountables to work. It's not a very hard competition. So like if you and I are being chased by a tiger, I don't have to beat the tiger. I just have to beat you. So I just have to have a clean workplace where high accountables love working. So I have to really clean up my own view and move my own ego out of it and really hold that confidence. I have to be willing to suffer some discomfort to hire the person I want. The second you know, way is um, rather than waiting for the interview as your data point, I like to always be recruiting. So if someone is serving me dinner and they handle a tough situation well, I'm like taking note of that because I can teach you to be a receptionist or I can teach you to be my personal assistant, but I, it's harder to teach some of this other stuff. So I'm kind of always dating out there. I'm always looking, who are my fans? Who's who for me in hiring? Who knows my stuff? Who's active on social media? So that I don't have to have an interview be my only data point. When people do come in, I ask a lot of behavior-based questions. Tell me about a time in the last two weeks. I make it current. So you don't have to go back to the one time in college you screwed up. Everybody's screwed up in the last two weeks. Tell me a time in the last two weeks you've screwed up and uh, that you didn't deliver what you promised. And I let them tell me that. And I listen. Did they start out with, my boss was a nightmare. I got this dumped on me. If they start out with a backstory, they're not yet my candidate. And then I'll say, you know, I listen for eyes. Sigh, I didn't properly scope this. And so I ended up in a situation and I needed to, I love the word I. And most of us in interviews you know, oh, they're, they're egotistical if they use the word I. No, if they're claiming credit, it's ego. But if they're owning it, it, it's important. And then I ask them, if I didn't hear the word I, what's your part in that? And then I test people. So I don't just have people come in. I have people for interviews. I have people come in in shadow. And I test them as simple as I have my assistant call me out of the interview. And I have her sit down and I just say, I'm on question three, why don't you continue? And I wanna see how they handled that. Are they resilient? Do they disrespect people younger than me? Um, because my whole company is young. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things I do like that. And then just because you hired them, I don't know, depends on the state you're in. We have 90 days probation. And if you can't live up to your interview, We'll either extend it, but probably at my company, we'll just say, you know, we're going to be testing you and you're going to be testing us in 90 days. And that's tricky. A lot of people say, well, nobody's going to risk coming to you if they know they could lose their job in 90 days. Oh, yeah. High accountables will because high accountables have nothing to fear. A strong leader is constantly investing in their personal and professional growth. And they, of course, also want to see that growth in their team. I wanted to know how leaders can assess when someone is a good candidate for positive change or when we should simply cut our losses. The key ingredient, people are like, well, this person changed. It depends on their willingness. Yeah. It's absolutely willingness. I believe from a skill set standpoint, people are pretty unlimited in potential. It's the willingness. And so one, when you're working with somebody, before you figure out and think, oh my gosh, what can I do to get them more successful? Go to them. What's your level of willingness to really evolve in this situation? And if they're like, I'm not willing at all, I don't agree with the strategy. You know, help me understand. Are there some key objections I should know about? No, it's just not my preference. I don't like working that way. Well, that's where we're heading. So what's your plan to get on board? I don't have one. 
then what's your plan eventually? You have to ask this. What's your plan to transition outside the organization? Because most leaders let people have a third option. They're going to stay in vent and stay and complain and stay and resist and stay and slow you down. I owe my own company. This is my money, not in the market. It's in my company. I want the ROI. I'm not willing to you know, have that. So if leaders are going to coach, they need to not tell, but they need to ask questions. So we believe feedback is important, but feedback needs to be short and self-reflection long. And so coaching is helping people be curious about themselves. And I just say coaching is like, look at your results and notice you and how you moved through that situation. And what did you observe? And what would you like to be more skilled in or to do differently? And how do you want to change your approach? And one of the things that I think we want to as leaders sometimes is we want to give people what they need so they can have impact in the world. And we can't devalue the it's incredible value how people are impacted by the world and we're just there to help them make sense of it. So you got to give your people challenges. We know this about accountability. They got to be challenged. They have to experience accountability. They have to experience some natural consequences. You give them some feedback, but it's a lot of self-reflection and a lot of just making sense of it. Well, let's say, you know, you see this with sports teams a lot. If you're, wanting your organization to be world-class and it isn't today and you know what accountability it takes to get there but you've had people there for 10 15 20 years that have gotten used to a certain standard and you're about to raise that standard significantly for them can you really get that organization to where it needs to be without just cleaning house Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the ways that we keep ourselves from taking any action is the ego story that if I raise standards, I'll lose everyone. And that just doesn't play out in the actual facts. You have three groups in your organization. You have a group that you will lose and you should lose because the fact that you're thinking a warm body is better than no body or that there's nobody else out there. And then you'll have two other groups. You'll have people who will be thrilled that the standards are higher and that people are going to be held to those standards because they were already meeting those. Unfortunately, you took work away from the people not doing their work and you gave it to the people who are overperforming. And then there's the middle group and they will come your way. So when people say, you know, Sai, I, I have these people here, they've been here 10 years, they're good people. They're doing bad math. It's not about just because somebody's been here 10 years is doesn't mean they have the skills to take you to the next level. It doesn't mean that they're even loyal to you. People are like, they're loyal to me. I'm like, you should have heard what I heard in the bathroom. They're not loyal to you. They are using you. Now, it doesn't have to be this big battle of wills. It's not your decision whether they stay and go, whether they grow or not. You got to get out of all that manipulation, which is ego, and ask them. Here's what the standard is that we're going towards in a year from now. Are you willing to join me on that path? I will support you. I have responsibility in this. I haven't, I've let you sit for a few years. So I will jointly help train you up. But are you willing to go there? And your willingness will become obvious with, to me with your growth and your development. And if you're not willing to go there, it's okay. I'm not going to hold you hostage. But most of us do really bad math. I hear it all the time. Sai, you don't understand. They're the only expert in the world on this particular topic. 
I'm like, well, let's see if that's true. Google it. Oh, that's right. You can buy that talent. You can rent it. You can part. There's a hundred ways to get that expertise. No one is an expert anymore in you know their own right. And then a lot of people are like, Sai, they're a rock star. I mean, they can't get along with anybody and I have to give them a private office and I have to have a handler. And I even at times have to, you know, sometimes take three approaches to talk to them. I have to see what mood they're in, but they're a rock star. And I'm like, stop calling them a rock star. It's not technical performance any longer. That's almost pass fail. The true value of an employee, they need to deliver what the organization requires. A lot of people have technical knowledge, but they won't deliver it for the organization. They hoard it. They have to deliver what the organization requires, but then they have to be growing and developing so they will assure us they'll be relevant into the future. And then a big number most people don't think about is what's their true cost? What's the cost of them in addition to their salary and benefits? What's their freakout factor? What's their you know, maintenance fee? What is their hassle factor, their drama quotient? And a lot of people, the ego forgets that stuff and accepts it as a cost of doing business and overvalues the other stuff. We really do poor math. I once had a neurosurgeon, the only one in a three-state area, but I didn't lie to myself about it. We had him come through a different exit. We limited his um, you know, interaction with staff. We didn't pretend that this person was a rock star. We pretended, or we, we didn't pretend. The reality was he was... A decent surgeon, although even a surgeon needs good team you know, skills, and he was all we had for now. But I think it's important because that's where people emotionally blackmail you. In a lot of cases, people are like, well, um, if they left, they would take all my customers with them. Well, what is your part in getting your company to a point of risk where your customers impact or your customers interaction is only with one person who tends to withhold information from you. They're like, well, that's a big risk. I'm like, well, then put a plan in place to mitigate that risk. Because every time someone gives me a reason why they have to keep somebody who costs more than they're worth, it leads back to that leader's accountability level. In business, all roads lead back to the leader. And a leader with an innate sense of curiosity has an advantage when it comes to driving innovation. Kara Golden is the founder of Hint, the leading flavored water company in the country and an iconic brand loved by millions. She shares her story of building this nine-figure business in her best-selling book, Undaunted, and discusses the industry crash course that she experienced when taking her product to market. So the only knowledge I had was that I drank Diet Coke. That was it. I think I knew that there was Diet Pepsi out there. I wasn't a Diet Pepsi drinker, but it was definitely, you know, that was it. My dad had actually been in the food industry. He founded a brand that was inside of a large company, a brand called Healthy Choice. I remember when I decided to go into the beverage industry, I asked my dad, come on, you've been in the industry. You know how to get a product on the shelves of the local supermarket. And that's a whole other piece of it, too, that when people are starting something from scratch and you're not doing it, from a perspective of being inside of a Coca-Cola or Kraft or ConAgra, some big company, these guys, they own a big chunk of the supermarket. And literally, it's real estate inside these stores. And if you ever come out to San Francisco or we meet in Atlanta, I'll walk you down the aisles. I've taken friends down, you know, and I've shown them. I don't even know who in the ice cream industry what they own, but I could guess now I can walk down an aisle and I'd say, 
dryers, for example, owns 60% of this and, and I can figure it out pretty quickly. And, and again, it's like an, a world that I didn't even know existed, even though my dad was in that industry. You know, what I've learned is that it's, it's so much tougher to actually be able to grow it from nothing to something. And then even when you get it a little bit bigger, then you've got more and more competition that's coming at you because potentially you are taking away share from them in the supermarket. And when you start showing up where you've got your sales per square foot is higher than some of these big brands, you're in trouble. They're coming for you. And you've got to figure out how do I continue to differentiate? How do I continue to get different distribution where that's the only way that I'm going to be able to stay alive? And and so for us, I think one way that we differentiated is we got our product into these micro kitchens at Google. And people say like, oh yeah, you were in the tech industry. It was so obvious that you went and did that. No, I mean, I was kind of trying to figure out if I shut this little idea down that I had started and they were interviewing me for a job. And that's when this guy, Omid Cortesani, said to me, maybe you should talk to the chef, Charlie, and see if he wants some of your drinks in our kitchen because we don't have any drinks. And that turned into our biggest account was Google. And, you know, when Cheryl left Google and went to Facebook, her assistant called me and said, hey, Cheryl, I used to get it at Google. Can we get it at Facebook? I'm like, sure, I'll just drive my Grand Cherokee down to Facebook and bring some cases. And again, those businesses, that was the start of having different distribution. And, you know, the one, the last thing I'll say, it's funny thinking back on those days because we were the only drink inside of Google for 18 months. There was no other drink. And as Google was growing, I mean, it was crazy. They were, they'd reach out to us and they'd say, hey, can we actually have a couple of employees to just come and merchandise refrigerators inside of Google? We'll give them, you know, security clearance and everything else. And it was insane. Very different than the situation with what was going on in, in grocery stores. So very, very different setup for us. And it's a dream come true when you can be the only one in a, in a distribution store. And as I think about all this, I have to wonder if not knowing like the aspects of like when you don't know what you don't know, it was an advantage in a sense of just driving a lot of creativity and innovation. I'm curious just with everything from creating the product to the bottling, to the distribution, to building the brand, all this stuff. What was the most challenging part? It's funny. I mean, I have a timeline that I've gone through with the team, especially new team members where I'll look at situations, I'll set goals, right? And then you go and you achieve that. A Starbucks was one of those where I thought one day we're going to, they're going to have something else besides coffee in here. We're going to get in these cases and we're going to have hint in there. And I eventually achieved those goals. But I think when those goals happen, even if you are successful, even if you feel like you know what success is for the other side of the table in a situation, sometimes things come up and they just explode, right? In this case, we got kicked out of Starbucks. We had had like a year and a half of traction in there and we were doing great and everything was awesome. And then it wasn't. And I think that when you get in a situation where 
that happens and it happens to you enough, that's when you sit there and think about, well, what could I have done? And I think the question and, and the answer to that is that you have options. Because when you don't have lots of clients, when you don't have lots of competitors to Starbucks, when you're putting all your eggs in one basket, then those surprises end up being detrimental to the life of your company, right? And so I think that's kind of the key thing that I've learned along the way is that always have options. Because when you don't have options, that's when you feel like they've got you by the throat, right? And then you make bad decisions because you've you've got to stay alive, right? And I think like no one ever wants to be in those situations, but I think it's always important to be thinking about how do I diversify? How do I not have all my distribution in Google, even though it's, you know, an incredible place to be and place to start? How do I go find more of those? And I think just always be on your toes finding those. I'm sure in your business too, right? You're, especially when everything is great, you just think like, okay, I'm going to kick back. And I mean, do you feel that way as well? It's interesting because at our at our recent conference, I shared kind of the the story of Crisp and, and all the lessons learned. And what was interesting to me as I was reflecting on that when we were creating the presentation, at least in my case, I found that after every great thing that had happened, after every kind of, I guess, leap that the business had made, on the other side of that was some huge bit of adversity that I did not even know was waiting for me. And, it, and then the cycle would repeat. Something amazing would happen. I'd feel that every problem was solved right before a massive problem larger than anything I could have imagined was looming. And then we'd solve that problem. And then I'd think, okay, we're getting the hang of this. And then another massive problem. And it was just, it's literally that year after year, after year, after year, things that at first blindsided me, now I've come to expect them. It sounds like you've had a, a similar journey in the sense that after every great thing, so like in the example of Starbucks, you get like distribution at all these Starbucks. And then I guess what Howard Schultz decides, they want to add food to the Starbucks offerings, right? They need to free up some like refrigeration real estate, right? So then they pull hint, things like that. I'm just curious, what are those days like for you? And then how do you bounce back from them? I think it's always looking at, they don't stay bad for very long. And it sounds like you've had those situations too, where it really is a cycle. And that's what, it's so great to be able to go back and share those stories too. Because I think oftentimes people, I think there's still a lot of people out there that don't want to talk about, you know, their challenges or their failures. And I think that if you can actually be upfront about those, first of all, I think opening up is kind of your own therapy session, right? Where you talk about it and it's definitely got some challenges. People are going to learn from them. They'll ask you questions that maybe a lot of times you have been asked, but other times you haven't been asked along the way. The key thing is just to know that dark days don't last forever and that you have to be open to what's coming next. And I think in so many situations, maybe I could say that I didn't see it coming to your point where, you know, you feel blindsided or whatever, but often I don't see the light coming, right? And I know that the light is even brighter because I had a dark moment. I'm such a huge believer in that, you know, when you think about it, it's very exciting and that's what you have to believe. But instead, if you just sit and you think I'm a failure, I've always got challenges, my life 
sucks, whatever, then I don't think you're open to the new things. I think you've got to open yourself up and know that there's things that are coming around the corner. You've got to wake up every morning and think about, okay, what are the things that I want to go accomplish that maybe I didn't know that I had time to do or hadn't really, you know, blue sky things like a lot. And the more you do that, the more you're going to find your good, your light. It's almost like setbacks sort people. And what would we be without them? Because any entrepreneur that I've spoken with that has achieved anything of impact or significance, there's always the stories of like adversity and here are the, not just the challenge that I experienced, but more importantly, the lessons, like here's how this happened for me. So with every challenge, at least that I've experienced, there was always something in that, that there was a lesson that could be applied to, you know, really not just what the solution would be, but to making any sort of forward progress. And I'm curious, so something we share is that we both work with our spouses. And I'm curious as to how that dynamic, personally and professionally, what was that like you know, with, with you and your husband, Theo, and, and just throughout this journey, what, what has that been like in terms of building a family while also building this business? It's funny, I never thought, like people have always asked me, did you always know you wanted to work with your husband? No, not at all. I think for, for us, we were just, we were incredibly busy people. He was an intellectual property, Silicon Valley attorney. Here he sees his wife with this crazy idea to start a beverage company. And I'm like, hey, can you go take product to Google for me? And, you know, he was like, sure, you know, I'll go drive it down for you. And I mean, that was like the beginnings. And what he realized was this mission and this passion to actually help people and to change society for the better was something that he really believed. He's a son of a doctor. I mean, he really believed that health was something that if you didn't have it, no matter how much money you had, no matter what your gender was, you know, where you lived, like the world was hard. And so he thought, you know, this is really interesting that you've stumbled upon something that really can help people. And, you know, I'll help you out while I'm trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to do next. And, you know, we've been married for 26 years and four kids and, I think we always had different skill sets. I always share, uh, I don't know if your wife has similar skill sets, but we're really, really different. And we both really appreciate each other's skill sets. So it's very natural for us to kind of go from idea to execution between the two of us. And it's not, I think I probably used to be more on the idea side and he was on the execution. I think we've learned from each other over the years. I always share with people, for example, he came in almost 17 years ago now and started running operations and helping. He had never had any experience in operations. And he spent a lot of time at bottling plants over you know the years. And I spend a lot less time at bottling plants, but I always want to know about the aspect of bottling this product and really understanding it. And I think that's the key thing. I may not spend the largest percentage with it, but I... I think I always want to be able to do that. And so having like a clear divide in responsibilities, I think is not necessarily the way we've done it. Just like, you know, with parenting, it has to be like a yin and yang. It has to be, you know, you work with each other. And I think that that's the key thing. Growing a massively successful organization is never a solo game. The most successful leaders do it by surrounding themselves with a game-changing team. 
Liz Weissman is a renowned researcher and executive advisor. In addition to acting as the CEO of the Weissman Group, whose clients include Apple, Google, Tesla, and Twitter, she's also the best-selling author of Impact Players, How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. So what does it mean to be an impact player? Well, you know, an impact player, the metaphor comes out of the sports world. You know, the sports world has people that we call impact players, that they're standout contributors, they're talented They're talented athletes. They make plays. They get things done. They're the kind of people you turn to in a clutch. Like they're the people who get put out on the field when the stakes are high, when the team is behind, when you need to secure the win or, you know, execute the play. So they make an important contribution to the team, but they also make the entire team better. They're people who raise the level of play for the whole team. And, you know, I started this research with this, assumption that, you know, this is not limited to sports, that the work world has impact players. If you ask any manager, like, who are the impact players on your team? Oh, they'll tell you. Those names come to mind very quickly for most managers. They haven't always known why. Like, I don't know. There's just something about her. Like, there's this, like, I don't know, this je ne sais quoi. It's hard to describe, but I know when we're down and I need someone to come through, boom, I hand her the ball. Like, I can do a no-look pass. She's going to catch it. She's going to drive it through. And so I wanted to know why. What makes them different? What makes them tick? How do they think? How do, And what do they do differently that ends up in some ways seeming small, but creates big differentials in, in the impact they have? And from my understanding, I mean, just to give people some context that those that are listening, so your research on this was incredibly comprehensive. Like if you could speak to just the process that you underwent in in order to discover some of the findings we'll talk about. Oh my gosh, Michael, you know what? Like if there's a way to suck up to me as a human being, it's pretty simple. It's like my favorite cookies or just tell me the research was comprehensive. Like it really, thank you, because I really tried to do really comprehensive research because I think there's so many management books out there that are like ideas people just make up and it sounds good. But we really tried to do very thorough research. And, you know, the nature of that was that we went out and talked to 170 managers and asked them to identify someone who was an impact player and then someone who was what I called an ordinary contributor. Not like average or barely getting done, but a rock solid contributor. And so I'm trying to figure out what are the differences between rock solid contributors, people who are good hires, good attorneys, good members of a team versus those that are driving huge portions of the business, the people who are winning the most difficult or critical cases in your world. And then I also asked the managers to compare an impact player with someone who was under contributing. And for me, this was the most fascinating part of the research. It wasn't like, oh, tell me about a high performer and a low performer. Like, you know, someone who can't find their way out of a paper bag kind of low performer. An under contributor was someone who is smart, hardworking, and capable, talented. Could have been top of their class in school. But yet, strangely, they're under contributing. They're missing the mark. It's like they're enigmatic. Like somehow something's not firing right. The book is mostly about the difference between the ordinary contributor and the impact player. And you say that there's really three different categories, right? Because there's one in the middle too, right? There's like the high impact players, there's the under contributors, and then there's the typical contributors, right? But you mentioned all three are actually smart and talented. 
Yeah. And that's what I think what we tried to do in this research is hold those variables constant. So I did want to like, oh, don't tell me about the difference between someone who's really smart and someone who can't think. I want to know in a room full of equally smart, talented, hardworking people, why are some people completely off base? Other people are like turning a crank, going through the motions, and then other people are hitting it out of the park and making a huge difference. They're like business builders. They're game changers. Like that's what I want to know with those other variables held constant. And when it came to the value that these individuals deliver, what I found interesting is you mentioned that impact players are, are three times, like they deliver three times as much value as your typical contributor and 10 times as much value as those that are under contributing. Yeah, and it behooves managers and business owners to find the impact players out in the workforce and bring them into your organization and to see if you can raise the level of play for a whole team. Like, how do you build an entire team of impact players? You know, and unlike the concept of mm, an MVP, you know, where you think, oh, well, there's one. Like, we have to designate one MVP. It's actually possible to build an entire team that is thinking and working this way. So that was the quest I went on, which is like, how much of this is learnable and how do you spread it across a firm? You know, as I was reading this, I had this thought, I think that sometimes people within an organization may confuse impactful professionals as loyal followers or those who drink the Kool-Aid. But you state that impact players, they're not just loyal followers, they're ready leaders. And I'm curious what you mean by this. Oh yeah, you know, the ordinary contributor were people who took direction but they ended up waiting for direction. Like, okay, I'll jump when you tell me to jump. But, you know, one of the uh, parts of the research, we went and asked these 170 managers. And whenever I do research, I always throw in something that's just, I think, interesting and fun, not even necessary for the research. And what I asked all 170 managers is, what do people do that most frustrates you? Give me all your pet peeves. What makes being a manager and owner like miserable? What makes you hate your job? And they're like, oh, nothing. And then I'm like, oh, I think there's something. And then they start talking to me and there's a whole bunch of things. And then I also ask them like, what do people do that you most appreciate? And top of the list of things that frustrate bosses, number two on the list is wait for the boss to tell you what to do. We don't want people who are like standing there waiting. We don't want attendance who's like, oh, okay, you need your coat. Let me go get your coat for you. It's we want people who are anticipating problems. When you look at the, the list of things that bosses most appreciate, number one, doing things without being asked. Like we want people who aren't really loyal followers. We want people who are kind of deputies and a little bit bossy. Like, you know what? Hey, I see this problem. I think something should be done. Do you want me to go do this? Yes, I do. Or, hey, I saw this problem and I just took the liberty of going ahead and calling a meeting and like, is that okay? Yes. Like, thank you. Now, I should say there probably are some sort of jerk bosses and maybe some people who have got like lots of anxieties. Like if you do that, they might just come undone. But I think they're very much the minority. I think most bosses want people who are willing to step up and lead without being asked. Right. I mean, if somebody, for example, walks by a painting and sees that it's off center, you know, they can go to their boss and say, hey, I think, uh, sh should, should I center this or just do it? Right. And then say, here's, you know, 
I've solved the problem. And I'm curious from a leader's standpoint, how can they better coach their team members to step up in this way? Or in some cases, I know you mentioned even like stepping back, but it seems like it's a function of understanding what aspects you have control and influence over, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's one, it's being a permissive kind of leader. It's saying, you know what, like I will back you if you are taking forward motion, like I'm generally going to back you. I remember one point when I was working at Oracle, I could see that I was confusing everyone on my team because they would come in to give me updates on projects. And I'd get so excited to be like, oh yeah, that's great. Have you thought about this? Have you tried this? Or what about this? And their eyes would get all glazy. And so I wrote in big letters on my door, kind of functioned a little bit like a whiteboard. And so I wrote in big whiteboard marker on my door to my office. I just said, ignore me as needed to get your job done. And, you know, everyone thought that was funny, but also on that door were listed like, here are three top priorities. Ignore me as needed, meaning don't take me so seriously. Like if you know the right thing to do, you just do it. And if I disagree with what you do, I might just throw a small fit for a minute, but in the end, I'm going to back you. There's a great technique I learned from John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco. When John was hiring his first vice president into the company, a man named Doug, who's going to run customer service, he said to Doug, Doug, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote and you get 100% of the accountability, which I love because what he's saying is, Doug, you are in charge, not me. And see, we forget that people look to us as leaders and owners and assume we want to be in charge and that we are in charge. And when problems arise, they should give them to us. But what we have to do is say, no, 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 I'm going to create owners out of other people. And you may not be able to create equity ownership in your firm. But what you can do is you can give people ownership of a project or their world, which is like you are the leader of this, not me. Meaning, you know what, ignore me as needed to get the job done. Step up and lead. Don't wait. And so there's so many things that we need to do to permit people to work in the way that we want them to work and that really they want to work. Impact players take ownership and step up to the challenge when called upon. But what role does mindset play in approaching external and often uncontrollable obstacles? Theodore Rubin, who was a psychotherapist, who said, the problem isn't having problems. The problem is thinking otherwise and thinking that having problems is the problem. So I didn't say that quite as well as I think he said it, but but what that means is like, you know, having problems inside an organization is not a problem. It's the norm. And it only becomes a problem when you think that it's a problem. So like if you come to work every day and go, you know what, there will be problems. There's going to be adversity. There's going to be hardship. Life is full of difficulty. Like my job is to just handle that thoughtfully and gracefully and effectively. And it's the people who go in with a contingency plan for life and for work or for imagine in the legal world, the case, which is like, oh no, there will be surprises. There will be unfortunate turns, like they're going to happen. So when they happen, I don't panic and I don't hide. I'm just like, oh, there it is. I've been waiting for you. And I'm waiting for you with a plan. One of my favorite examples of this, Michael, was um, reading about Dr. Kevin Menace in Las Vegas. And so I think a lot of people are familiar with this great tragedy that happened on the Las Vegas Strip a few years ago, I think it was October 2017, where 
for reasons still unknown, a gunman opened fire on an outdoor concert. And it was the largest mass casualty incident in the United States. You know, there were 600 and something people like wounded. 470 of those people, you know, were with gunshot wounds. And all the minor wounds were taken to other hospitals, but the 250 most significant gunshot wounds, people whose lives were hanging in the balance, arrived at Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas. And, you know, like, just imagine, I know people listening to this are attorneys. I want you to imagine that you're the physician on staff that night at 10 o'clock. Like, what do you do when 200 critically wounded on the verge of death individuals arrive in the ER bay. Like, what do you do? Well, like most people would have been completely overwhelmed and everyone would have understood like, okay, you're, you're not, an ER bay is set up for five critically wounded people at a time. But Dr. Kevin Menace, he'd been thinking about this for a long time. He's like, man, I work in Las Vegas. This is a logical target. Like what if the unthinkable happened someday. What if there was a mass casualty incident? And what if we had like a disproportionate number of those arrive or the closest hospital to the strip? Like what would we do if we were dealing with hundreds of people, not a couple people? And so when that call came and that unthinkable moment actually happened, he was ready. He'd been thinking it all through like, okay, what do we do? We can't tag patients with they normally say, okay, this is like a code red patient versus a code yellow versus a code green, you know, red being on the verge of expiring. He's like, we don't have time for that. And he had already thought, you know what, you would tag rooms. You would say, here's the red room where we put the most critically wounded patients, where we have the right medicines and equipment and physicians in those rooms. Here's, and this is how we would move them through. And what do we do when we run out of radiologists and we don't have enough time to send to the, like, you know what, I'm going to bring that radiologist down to the x-ray room to read that image. So like, and what do we do about this? And what do we do about that? And, you know, within minutes, he's like, got the administrator of the hospital calling on the speaker, like, you know what, call all doctors at home, get every available physician on staff, clear out the um, OR, clear the room, clear the hallways. And then one of my favorites was like, anyone who's physically capable of pushing a gurney, report to the ambulance bay. And he's like, if you can push a gurney, you can save a life. You know, and he's thought this through because he's anticipating this problem. And that's the mentality of the impact player is to say problems are normal. And my job is to be prepared for them when they arise. I'm going to give a huge thank you to Sherry, Cy, Kara, and Liz for joining us on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. Oh, 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 oh